This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Psychiatric and Behavioral Health Management in Chronic Health Conditions. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Depression has been described since the second millennium BCE in Mesopotamia. Of course, back then, it wasn't called depression, and it wasn't a medical ailment, but rather demonic possession. So naturally, the only way to treat such a possession would be to drive out the evil spirits. Often this meant beating or starvation or other forms of exorcism. Hippocrates, who I discussed a lot on MedNet, was one of the first physicians to suggest a physical etiology for depression, which for a long time was called melancholia. He postulated it was due to an imbalance of the body's humors, which are body fluids he believed controlled all of the body's functions. Specifically for melancholia, the problem he postulated was due to too much black bile. So he recommended courses of treatment, including bloodletting, bathing, exercise, and diet. Now, demonic possession and its archaic treatment forms continued to be the prevailing theory behind melancholia, even into the common era. Rhazes, a Persian doctor from the 9th century, was one of the first to suggest mental illness could arise from the brain. He even went so far as to recommend positive reward for appropriate behavior, a very early form of behavior therapy. Now, moving into more recent history, science has advanced and humans are living longer than ever. That also means we have more chronic diseases than ever before. In a 2015 to 2018 study, Mental Health America screened patients with chronic illnesses such as cancer, heart disease, chronic pain, diabetes, and COPD. Of these patients, up to 70 to 80% screened positive for being at risk for a mental health condition. The problem is really bi-directional though. Depressed patients with chronic illnesses also have worse health outcomes. Diabetic patients, for example, 
who have depression have lower glycemic index, glycemic control, decreased activity levels, higher weight, and higher levels of complication and functional impairment. So today, to discuss the effects of psychiatric and behavioral health management in chronic health conditions are two of Ohio State University's psychiatry experts. Dr. Kevin Johns is an assistant professor of psychiatry who specializes in treating patients with chronic medical problems. He also works to create collaborative care models to help non-psychiatric providers such as myself better address their patients' mental health needs. Dr. Ashley Pona has a PhD in clinical psychology and specializes in bariatric psychology and eating disorders. Kevin, Ashley, welcome to MedNet. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Ashley, how much more likely is it for someone with chronic illness to have depression? In general, we know that it's more likely in individuals with chronic disease compared to the general population. When you look in the literature, you'll find kind of a range of numbers, but in general, we know that it's around an average of about 25%. Mm, that's pretty high. Now, Kevin, is the approach to someone with depression and chronic illness different than someone without chronic illness? I would say um, it requires a lot of the same principles and tools, but mm -hmm. you also have to keep in mind how the treatments will interact with their other medical problems and also the other medications that they're taking. Thanks, Kevin. If you haven't already, please check out our updated website at ccme.osu.edu. There you can find all of our webcasts as well as our slides. If you have any questions about our webcast or any suggestions for future topics, please feel free to send those our way using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom right-hand corner of our webcast player. All right, now, enough from me. Let's hear from our experts. Kevin? Thank you, Jeanine. Uh, so today, I really want to talk about depression and medical illness, and particularly the medication uh, management aspect of it. So to start with, I have no uh, relevant, relevant financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. I will be talking about some off-label uses of medications, uh, particularly when we talk about how antidepressants could potentially be beneficial for symptoms of other chronic medical problems. So and our uh, goals for today are to learn about how depression affects other medical problems, how do we diagnose depression in patients with comorbid medical conditions, and then um, how do we treat it? and also how can behavioral health providers and, um, and general medical providers uh, better collaborate in order to get better outcomes for our patients. So when we think about why it's important to think about depression in medical settings, one of the biggest reasons is that depression is simply very common, uh, as Dr. Pona mentioned. Um, the uh, lifetime prevalence of depression, depending on the sources you read, can be as high as 17, 20 percent. Um, and also about 10% of PCP visits are related to depression. Um, also complicating this is the fact that there's unfortunately a severe access, uh, severe access issue where um, there's a shortage of psychiatric providers, shortage of counselors, and so unfortunately a lot of patients, you know, they have to rely on their PCPs for, uh, for their behavioral health treatment because they can't get to more specialized care. In addition, um, major depressive disorder is also something that I tell people it affects the whole body. It's not just in your head. Um, major depressive disorder, uh, when, when patients are afflicted with it, they come in with more medically unexplained symptoms, and it also increases the morbidity that they have from their other medical illnesses. It can um, increase their risk of developing complications from diabetes, for example. It can delay their recovery from surgery. It can uh, worsen their outcomes when getting cancer treatment. And so, uh, so I tell people that you know, getting a good control of their depression is uh, a good, important part of the plan for controlling their other medical problems. 
Also, from an economic perspective, when you combine major depressive disorder with other chronic medical conditions, you have much higher healthcare utilization uh, metrics of, uh, in, in patients with these comorbidities, as well as higher risk of non-adherence treatment. And you know, when we think about why patients with medical illness have depression or are at greater risk for depression, I think there's numerous causes. You know, if, um, even uh, major depressive disorder in you know, um, patients without comorbid medical issues, we don't fully understand the causes. And in medical illnesses, you're also throwing in the effects of the other medical problems, such as, you know, the physiological effects, neurological effects, uh, side effects of medications, as well as the psychological implications of having a chronic medical illness. So all this uh, is to say that, you know, when patients come in with depression and co-occurring medical illnesses, it's important to think about how their presentation can be different because of their, their other medical problems. Um, one important thing to keep in mind, though, that I emphasize is that major depressive disorder is never an appropriate response to medical illness. We certainly expect our patients, after getting a, a dreadful diagnosis of cancer or something like that, for instance, we expect them to be really sad, we expect them to be angry or anxious, um, but to develop major depressive disorder is never an appropriate response to medical illness. Um, it's common, but it's still a dreaded complication that warrants clinical attention. Um, I use the analogy that, you know, if someone was unfortunately hit by a car, you know, it's very common for them to have broken bones, but we still treat those broken bones. And um, I take the same approach when it comes to major depressive disorder. So when it comes to de diagnosing depression uh, in patients with chronic medical problems, the DSM-5 still uses the uh, same criteria, essentially, where you need at depressed mood or anhedonia plus um, at least uh, a total of five symptoms, which include neurovegetative symptoms like changes in sleep, uh, appetite, uh, changes in energy, um, or uh, cognitive symptoms like concentration, feelings of guilt, suicidal ideation. And these symptoms have to be present for at least a two-week duration. And they also, uh, the DSM-5 stipulates that these cannot be due to another medical problem or a substance. Now, the challenge comes is that the DSM-5 doesn't really tell us how to determine if these neurovegetative symptoms are due to a medical problem or due to a medication, for example. And um, so there, unfortunately, is not a lot of guidance on, on that. People have come up with various approaches to try to get around it. Um, some people have uh, proposed exclusive approaches where they um, exclude the neurovegetative symptoms, such as changes in sleep patterns or appetite entirely in patients who are medically ill. Um, also, um, other people propose the substitutive approach where they substitute more cognitive or emotional symptoms for those more physical symptoms of depression. Um, I find both of these approaches to be lacking in, in, in some ways because they ignore the research that shows that when patients have major depressive disorder, it is an illness that affects the whole body and it uh, really worsens their physical symptoms from other medical problems. Um, so in clinical practice, I still use the inclusive approach where I try not to spend too much time splitting hairs about, you know, are you not eating because of your inflammatory bowel disease or because you're depressed? You know, either way, you know, if you have poor appetite or you're not sleeping, even if it's due to a medical problem, you're suffering and that increases your risk for depression. So, uh, you know, and, it, and diagnosing depression, I think, really starts with having a good systematic way to screen for depression. 
Uh, fortunately, there have been a lot of tools that have been developed uh, for screening for depression in fast-paced primary care settings. Uh, the, one of the most common one that I recommend is called the Patient Health Questionnaire 9 or PHQ-9. It is a uh, uh, patient self-report questionnaire where they basically rate the nine symptoms of major depressive disorder and rate how frequently they're, they're uh, having them. Uh, a cutoff of 10 or more has been shown to have uh, really good sensitivity and specificity of 0.88 for major depressive disorder. Um, and in addition to screening, um, the, the PHQ-9 can also be used to track treatment response and estimate the severity of their, uh, of their depression. So for example, if you were treating someone's high blood pressure, at each follow-up visit you would want to measure their blood pressure to see are they actually getting better in response to your medications or other, other treatments. And I recommend the same thing for treating depression. At each follow-up visit, administer a new PHQ-9 and see are their scores actually going down. It's also important to remember that with question nine, it does ask about thoughts of being better off dead or thoughts of harming oneself. So I tell people always remember to check what the patient re reported for question nine and make sure to address it before the patient leaves the office. Now, there is also an even shorter uh, version of the, the PHQ screener called the PHQ-2, which only uses the top two questions, screening for the core symptoms of depression, anhedonia and feelings of depression. And this, uh, and if a patient scores a uh, score of three or greater, then you can then follow up with the full PHQ-9 screener. So in fast-paced environments where you don't have a lot of time, this can be an even shorter uh, way to, to uh, screen for depression. However, I always emphasize that these screeners are just conversation starters. They're not sufficient to diagnose depression. Uh, similarly, just like a, a single uh, elevated blood pressure reading doesn't necessarily mean that a patient has hypertension. And similarly, um, you know, uh, elevated PHQ-9 doesn't necessarily mean that a patient has major depressive disorder. You still have to talk to the patient. When we're looking at treatment options for patients with chronic uh, medical conditions, we really st still are working with the same, same tools. We have psychotherapy, which you know, Dr. Ponin will talk about uh, later, and medications, as, as well as you know, uh, neuromodulation um, techniques like ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, or transcranial magnetic simulation. Um, I'm going to focus on medications, and when it comes to medications, all the antidepressants are considered equally effective. Um, and like when treating depression in patients without chronic medical illness, it's important to keep in mind that an adequate trial of an antidepressant takes about six to eight weeks at a therapeutic dose. So not only do you have to put them on a starting dose, but you have to increase the dose gradually to the point where they're at the therapeutic dose and give it enough time for it to work. And it's important to tell patients that uh, you know, treatment is an iterative process. We don't always get it right the first time. A lot of times we have to adjust the dose or add an augmenting agent or switch to another antidepressant or sometimes just wait and give, give it more time. And because all the antidepressants are essentially equally effective for treating depression, when selecting an antidepressant in a patient who has chronic medical illnesses, I think about how is the medication going to affect or interact with their other diseases, including their psychiatric comorbidities, as well as their medical comorbidities, like heart disease, if they have renal or liver disease, or CNS disease, like seizures, that's going to affect which medications I pick. Um, and also, I also want to be thoughtful about what other medications are, there ta are they taking for their other medical conditions and make sure that we don't run into any problematic drug-drug interactions. So essentially, I'm trying to match the, the right side effect profile to the patient. And next, I want to talk about the classes of antidepressants and you know, some, some uh, thoughts about how, how the, to use them in patients who are medically ill. And then after that, I'm also going to talk about specific side effects and side benefits and what are the best and worst 
uh, antidepressants uh, for those for those uh, uses. So the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, are typically used first line these days for treatment of major depressive disorder, um, primarily because they are uh, safer and more easily tolerated than many of our other agents. Um, they do, they can lead to common side effects like GI upset, headache, changes in sleep, like insomnia, sedation, nervousness, but those typically go away after the first, first few days, the first week. Um, one common side effect uh, that unfortunately uh, appears later in treatment is sexual dysfunction, and that can take the form of erectile dysfunction or decreased libido or um, anorgasmia. Um, and, and oftentimes patients are hesitant to discuss this with providers, so it's important to, to screen for that uh, during follow-up visits. More rare side effects of SSRIs include SIADH, um, bleeding risk, and in uh, children and young adults uh, age 24 or less, um, increased risk of suicidal ideation. Unlike, unlike some of the older antidepressants like TCAs, the SSRIs do tend to have a lower anticholinergic burden, um, with the exception of paroxetine. Um, in general, with, when choosing amongst the, the SSRIs, I tend to use sertraline, citalopram, and escitalopram a lot in patients with co-occurring medical problems because they have the lowest risk of cytochrome P450 interactions in general. And surgery in particular has the best cardiac uh, safety, uh, safety data and track record to back it up in uh, using it in patients with chronic uh, cardiac disease. Next uh, is the uh, serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. And so these work like the SSRIs, but also uh, work on norepinephrine as well. Now, um, one particular thing to keep in mind in patients with chronic medical problems is that uh, many of these agents can be helpful for chronic pain. Now, when used for chronic pain, with the exception of duloxetine, it's an off-label use, but because of the noradrenergic component, they can be helpful for patients with chronic pain. Um, something to counsel patients about is that with the SNRIs, they can have worse discontinuation symptoms. A lot of patients, would, if they miss a dose, they'll describe a really uncomfortable headache. A lot of people call it brain zaps. Uh, it's not dangerous, it's not, not life-threatening, but it can be very uncomfortable. So uh, a patient's ability to adhere to their uh, medication is something to take into consideration. Venlafaxine is a very commonly used SNRI, um, and then desvenlafaxine is um, uh, another, another uh, very commonly used uh, SNRI as well. Uh, both of these uh, also have few cytochrome P450 interactions, uh, which can be helpful in patients who are taking lots of other medications. Um, they can increase blood pressure in some cases, um, and another off-label benefit of these, uh, of, of these agents is that they can be helpful for hot flashes, which is an important consideration in patients who might be perimenopausal or taking hormonal therapy for, for cancer treatment. Duloxetine has an indication for treatment of chronic pain, uh, and it's used uh, frequently for both treatment of pain and uh, for treatment of uh, depression. Um, with duloxetine, it's important to keep in mind that um, there is a rare risk of liver injury, um, and it's also renally cleared. Next, I'm going to talk about uh, the older uh, tricyclic antidepressants. Uh, these are still just as effective as the newer antidepressants like SSRIs and SNRIs, but their use tends to be more limited by side effects. Um, however, they can be still very effective uh, uh, analgesics for patients with chronic pain. In fact, um, studies have shown that the number needed to treat for using TCAs to address chronic pain is actually lower uh, compared to SNRIs. Unfortunately, the number needed to harm is also lower because of the side effect burden. And again, the use of the TCAs for treating chronic pain would also be an off-label use. 
Now, uh, specific side effects that TCAs can be uh, can be problematic with would be anticholinergic side effects, so dry mouth, confusion. Um, they can cause cardiac conduction abnormalities. Orthostatic hypotension and falls risk could be a, a consideration, and they're also potentially more lethal in overdose than the other antidepressants. Of the TCAs, nortripline and desipramine tend to be the best tolerated. One thing to keep in mind is that if you're if you are using the TCAs off-label to treat pain or insomnia, um, you can often use lower doses that would be considered sub-therapeutic for treating depression in order to manage their, their pain or, um, or insomnia needs. Um, and also, um, improvements in, their, in patients' pain isn't related to their improvement in depression. So even if they're not depressed, they can still get benefit from these medications for, uh, for pain. There are other antidepressants that don't fit neatly into other categories. Uh, bupropion is an antidepressant that is kind of a mild stimulant. It works on dopamine and norepinephrine. It can help with uh, activating people, giving them a little bit more energy, helping with concentration. Because it's not serotonergic, it's also not associated uh, with sexual dysfunction. Uh, it can be helpful for tobacco cessation. It does come with a, a seizure risk because it lowers seizure thresholds, so it's important to screen for history of seizures as well as risk factors for seizures, such as like heavy alcohol use or electrolyte abnormalities, eating disorders. Um, and then mirtazapine is another antidepressant that uh, has a unique side effect profile in that it can help with increasing appetite and helps with sleep. And so oftentimes in patients who are medically ill and having trouble maintaining adequate nutrition, having trouble sleeping, those can actually be desirable side effects. Um, also, because mirtazapine is not directly uh, impacting serotonin receptors, it's also not associated with sexual dysfunction, so that can be a really important consideration for a lot of patients. And it typically uh, is, not, is not a problematic um, you know, inducer or inhibitor of cytochrome P450 uh, enzymes. There's also some newer antidepressants that have hit the market recently. Uh, levomilnasopran is a newer SNRI. Uh, Velazidone is, is an SSRI that also has some partial agonist activity at the 5-HT1A receptor. Um, and then vortioxetine is a novel antidepressant that has a range of different effects, ranging from antagonist to agonist effects at different serotonin receptor subtypes. However, I ha haven't seen convincing evidence that these are necessarily significantly better or safer than the older antidepressants, and also because many newer medications, because they were studied typically in patients without chronic medical conditions, I do tend to be a late adopter, and I tend to stick with more tried and true options like SSRIs, SNRIs, uh, 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 medications with more post-marketing data. And now, looking at the side effect profile of these medications, you know, just to kind of quickly run through what's the best and worst, when we look at weight gain, TCAs and mirtazapine are going to give you the highest risk of weight gain. Bupropion, and to some extent, uh, fluoxetine can actually decrease appetite. Uh, with sedation, TCAs, mirtazapine, and paroxetine uh, can be more sedating, whereas the other antidepressants, especially bupropion, can be more activating. The TCAs tend to have more anticholinergic side effects than the others, and of the SSRIs, paroxetine tends to be the most anticholinergic. When it comes to the side benefits of chronic pain, um, all of the noradrenergic antidepressants can have benefit. Um, and uh, so that would be the SNRIs and the, uh, the, the tricyclic antidepressants. In patients with heart disease, risk of arrhythmia, the, um, the greatest risk of arrhythmia tends to be with the tricyclic antidepressants. Um, among the SSRIs, you do get higher risk of Q QT prolongation with citalopram and escitalopram. Uh, and sertraline is the best studied SSRI when it comes to heart disease. 
in patients with QT prolongation, or if I'm really trying to avoid prolonging their QT interval, um, there are some antidepressants that are, have been shown to have less risk of QT prolongation, and these include mirtazapine, bupropion, and duloxetine. If trying to avoid orthostatic hypotension, in general, the SSRIs are going to have minimal risk, and then the TCAs will have the highest risk. And then again, sexual dysfunction, you're going to have the least risk associated with the uh, ones that are not directly serotonergic, like mirtazapine and bupropion. Because there are serotonin receptors on platelets, the serotonergic antidepressants can also increase bleeding risk, although the um, exact magnitude and significance of it um, can vary depending on the study that you look at. Um, as a result, we don't recommend routinely discontinuing antidepressants before surgery, for example. Um, however, if you're really worried about a patient with a high risk of bleeding, uh, consider an antidepressant without direct serotonin activity, such as mirtazapine or bupropion. And then, unfortunately, all the antidepressants can be associated with hyponatremia and SIADH, but there's some, uh, some evidence that suggests that mirtazapine is lower risk than the others. And then, uh, so that's kind of how the medications can interact with common uh, medical problems. When we think about how the medications affect other medications, it's always important to keep in mind the cytochrome P450 interactions. And again, the sertraline, citalopram, and escitalopram tend to have the fewest interactions among the SSRIs. Uh, with QT prolongation, it's also it's important to keep in mind that not just antidepressants, but many other medications can prolong the QT interval, especially like macrolide antibiotics, many antiarrhythmic agents. Uh, similarly, with serotonin toxicity, you know we often think about serotonin toxicity when combining multiple psychiatric medicines, but it's also important to keep in mind that many pain medicines like tramadol or fentanyl or methadone can also uh, prolong the QT interval and can interact with these uh, psychiatric medi medications. Uh, similarly, linezolid can, uh, can also be serotonergic. And uh, lastly, you know, I want to talk about the collaborative care and how the delivery of medications can, how we deliver care can be more impactful sometimes than necessarily even what medication we choose. So, you know, traditionally behavioral health care has been siloed where, you know, behavioral health care providers are in one building, you know, across town and then the primary care providers are, you know, on the other side of town and patients might get referred from one to the other, but unfortunately that model doesn't work for a lot of patients. You know, patients don't necessarily have access to uh, specialty psychiatric care in a model like that. And so integrated care brings psychiatric care and behavioral health care under the same roof. And you know, it can take a range of forms, uh, such as e-consults, for example. Uh, but the best study model is called the collaborative care model. And the collaborative care model is a model that really works to bring <clears throat> excuse me, additional support to the primary care provider. And what it does is that it integrates a depression care manager into the primary care setting, usually a social worker, and that care manager assists the primary care provider by helping with getting a behavioral health assessment and taking a behavioral health history from the patient, initiating behavioral health interventions, and also reviewing the case on a weekly basis with a psychiatric consultant who can then update the primary care provider with updated recommendations that the primary care provider can use to help the patient get better. And the collaborative care mo model has been shown in numerous studies to be more effective than uh, usual care. And it's been shown to help achieve the triple aim of improved patient satisfaction, improved provider satisfaction, better outcomes, and also healthcare, uh, healthcare savings. And so, um, in conclusion, major depressive disorder is a devastating and costly complication of medical illness. It's not just in someone's head, but it's an illness that affects the entire body and other medical illnesses that they have. And so recognizing depression is an important part of treating it. And when prescribing antidepressants, it's important to consider how they interact with other comorbid medical illnesses and other medications. 
And lastly, team-based uh, approaches can be really helpful for integrating uh, uh, behavioral health care and making it more available to people and improving outcomes. Great. That was so helpful, Kevin. Thank you so much for going through that great overview. Um, now, a question about the screening. So let's say we're screening a patient with a chronic medical illness with one of those PHQ-2s. You mentioned a cutoff of three should prompt you to do a PHQ-9. Um, I have also read that sometimes we should maybe use a lower cutoff of a PHQ-2 score of two. Is there um, much of a difference with sensitivity or specificity between a cutoff of two or three? That's a great question. So with, with a PHQ-2 score of two, the sensitivity is going to be about 86%, so pretty good sensitivity, but the specificity will be 78%, a little bit lower. Um, with the cutoff of three, you do lose some sensitivity, so you're going to potentially miss some cases, and so the sensitivity is going to be about 61%, but you have much higher specificity at around 92%. So I think it really just depends on you know, your patient population, what healthcare resources you have available in your practice setting, and um, so that you can then match the right cutoff score to your patient population and your needs. Perfect. That's really helpful. Okay, so for the second half of our talk, we're going to turn things over to Dr. Ashley Pona to discuss behavioral health management in chronic diseases. Thank you so much for having me, Jing Jing. So yeah, as, as um, Jing Jing just said, I'm going to be talking more about the behavioral health side of things um, in managing chronic disease. So our agenda for today, first we'll be talking about why this is important. Why do we want to talk about and keep in mind behavioral health when treating chronic disease? We'll then talk about some common behavioral health concerns that we might see in medical illness. We'll then talk about some therapeutic strategies and ways of engaging patients and um, kind of talking to them about this and trying to get them involved in treatment if needed. We'll then talk about ways to access behavioral health resources in the community. So first to start, why is this important? And Dr. Johns kind of alluded to some of this earlier. I really like to talk about the biopsychosocial model of health when discussing the importance of behavioral health in uh, managing chronic disease. So as you'll see, this figure is kind of what I mean but when I say uh, the biopsychosocial model. So we have a number of different factors that fall under the biological realm, psychological realm, and social realm. And all of these factors interact with each other and individually um, impact health. So different factors that are considered biological could be our sex, our family history and genetics, our immune function, stress reactivity, any physical illness or disability. Different factors that would fall under the psychological realm could include our ways of coping, our behaviors, personality traits, our um, kind of our memory and learning, any past trauma. And then social factors could include things like socioeconomic status, education level, our neighborhood and built environment, a family relationship, social supports, cultural traditions. So again, all of these factors interact with each other um, and impact our health. So the idea is that we can improve our health by keeping in mind and targeting these various factors. So we know that there's a bi-directional bi and cyclical relationship between behavioral and physical health. So what that means is that both impact one another. We know that poor behavioral health can increase risk for developing physical health problems. And we also know that poor physical health can increase our risk for, for behavioral health concerns such as depression and anxiety. And so again, kind of going back to the biopsychosocial model, the idea is that to optimize overall health, 
we must address all the biopsychosocial components, not just the physical aspect, because everything interacts and kind of um, influences each other. So another thing to keep in mind, so I do a lot of work in bariatrics and um, I meet with people ahead of time before they get surgery to make sure that they're prepared, that they're aware of all the changes that need to be made and to make sure that there's no things that would interfere or worsen um, after surgery or interfere with their ability to get good results. So I look at things like mental health, um, any untreated mental health concerns, um, any, um, alcohol or substance use concerns, as well as eating disorders. And what I have found that sometimes when a condition is observed, for example, if someone maybe has untreated depression, it can cause some unnecessary tension um, with the provider and the patient, but also amongst other providers. So I think that always keeping in mind the biopsychosocial model and incorporating behavioral health in medical settings can help with this and um, can kind of normalize. As Dr. Johns had said, there is a higher risk of depression in individuals with chronic disease. And I think it would be important for other medical providers to incorporate this so that you know it can be treated earlier and that it's not kind of a, a, a shock when someone might hear about it when they meet with a behavioral health provider. So really trying to integrate the two. So to effectively treat a patient, we must look at the whole person. So we must be mindful to not disregard other aspects of the patient, including uh, comorbidities and broader societal conditions. So we must commit to understanding and integrating the patient, their needs, and the multiple conditions which impact their lives to effectively, effectively identify tools and strategies for recovery. So some common behavioral health concerns that might be found in individuals who experience chronic disease, one of the biggest two um, are depression and anxiety. So as we've talked about, there is a higher risk of these conditions in people with chronic disease. What this can look like, as Dr. Johns had noted, could, could be feeling sad, discouraged after receiving a new diagnosis, experiencing some feelings of stress or concern regarding a new diagnosis because we know that this might lead to new limitations in someone's lifestyle, being uncertain about treatment outcome, what the treatment options are, and just general uncertainty about how someone's life might look going forward with this new diagnosis. You know, these patients are really required to adapt to a new reality and that could be really challenging. So it's really important to assess the duration of symptoms and impact on functioning. And this can really help with treatment planning. Um, as Dr. Johns had noted, you know, clinically significant depression is, is not an appropriate response. I mean, it's something that's of concern and we want to treat it as soon as possible. But we could expect some mild symptoms of depression. Um, and even, even with that, that's something that we wanna know about and be aware about so we um, can kind of assess that going forward, monitor that, and again, um, recommend some treatment options. So these types of symptoms should be monitored um, continuously going forward. Sleep and low energy is another com common behavioral health concern that we might see. So this can be bothersome to a lot of patients. It could be related to the disease um, or depression. Um, and this might lead to people not being able to engage in certain activities that they used to do, which again, could be really challenging for a person to adapt to. So again, kind of talking about this bi-directional and cyclical relationship that I had mentioned earlier. So as Dr. Johns had noted, um, 
when people with chronic disease have a diagnosis of depression, this is associated with higher mortality risk and diminishes the efficacy of interventions. So in this figure here, this is kind of a representation of what that might look like, that cycle. So we see that there's chronic disease in the top right um, corner of that graph. This could lead to depression. And then when someone is feeling depressed, this can maybe lead to impaired self-care and adherence to the medical regimen. This could then further impact and worsen their chronic disease, disease, which could then worsen even further depression. And it's kind of, kind of becomes a vicious cycle. So in terms of the mechanisms of influence, why we see this bi-directional relationship. So in terms of why chronic disease might lead to depression, again, there's this burden of suffering. It can lead to discomfort, stress, and it can have an impact on quality of life. It can impact sense of self, self-esteem, and locus of control. And this is a reason why person-first language really matters. For example, if we say um, diabetic patient versus someone experiencing diabetes, just kind of psychologically, it, it feels much better to hear someone with diabetes that doesn't define who they are. It's just something that they're experiencing. And it kind of makes me feel like the person can have control over that and manage that versus calling someone a diabetic patient. It really makes it seem like it's part of their identity, who, they're, who they are, and it might not change. So it's really important to use person or patient first language. Um, grief and hopelessness about the future can also come along again with a chronic disease diagnosis. In terms of how depression could lead to chronic disease, we know that this could lead to hindering self-care behaviors and adherence to medical treatment. So maybe this might feel like too much effort for someone who is experiencing depression. Maybe this feels pointless for someone or um, maybe someone might be neglecting their needs in general. And so this could kind of carry over in terms of following medical treatments. We know that this could lead to some unhealthy coping behaviors. Um, for example, you know, eating in response to unpleasant emotions or using alcohol or substances to cope. Um, this could create hindered communication and trust between the patient and medical team, which could then lead someone to, you know, if they don't have that trust, maybe they're not willing to adhere to that treatment regimen that is prescribed to them. Um, these individuals might have a tendency to, to demand too much of themselves and have a high sensitivity to criticism. So maybe they kind of have this uh, all or nothing thinking, like if they can't follow the medical regimen perfectly, then why bother? Um, and then we also know that depression can lead to things like increased inflammation and abnormalities in stress hormones, which could then further impact chronic disease. So now talking a little bit more about therapeutic strategies and ways that we can start to intervene um, with patients who we might suspect um, are experiencing depression. So a lot of the um, strategies that I'll discuss today are kind of under the umbrella of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a very, um, it's kind of like a gold standard um, treatment for a lot of different psychological um, and physical concerns. Um, there's a lot of evidence to back it up. Um, so the premise of CBT, for short, is that our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors all impact each other. CBT is usually short-term, it's very skills-based and focused on the current problems. It's very collaborative with the provider and the patient, um, making sure to incorporate kind of the, pa the patient's feedback, meeting them where they're at, and then assigning homework is very common um, in CBT. So this is this figure on this slide kind of represents uh, CB, like the CBT framework for treating depression and anxiety. So we would have the CBT intervention, 
um, we would expect that this would lead to reduced depression. And there are some different mediators and moderators that might play a role in that. So the provider-patient relationship is really important. The patient's beliefs about illness and medications is important. Their social support, self-efficacy would all play a role. This would then lead to improved adherence and self-care behaviors. And just the CBT intervention on its own too should impact that because we're providing skills that would specifically target those things. And then ultimately this would lead to improved health outcomes. So first, first to kind of start, here are some strategies to engage patients um, and just kind of get them on board with just the assessment of depression and then providing some treatment for that. So it's really important to communicate empathically, listen and acknowledge the loss and grief process in someone who is experiencing a chronic disease. It's really important to um, give patients the time and space to be able to talk. And I know sometimes that can be difficult given the limitations and amount of time that we have with patients. Um, we really want to promote empowerment and hope and support self-efficacy, um, really support the patient in feeling like they have the ability to have some management over their chronic disease. Include the patient supports uh, as appropriate. So this includes maybe family members or community members. Assess their readiness to change and meet the patient where they're at. If someone is not in the space where they want to make change right now, regardless of what we share with them, um, it's probably not going to happen. So using some techniques such as motivational interviewing can really help to both assess a patient's motivation to change and also help them kind of realize the importance of starting to make that change. But again, meeting them where they're at is really important. Really important to be sensitive to bias and stigma against individuals affected by obesity. Um, important to explain treatment and encourage, que encourage questions of the patient. Sometimes it can be complex what we prescribe a patient to do. So allowing them to ask questions and um, maybe describing it in a way that is easier to understand will be important. And then increase accountability through regular follow-up. So in terms of some specific therapeutic strategies, to start off, um, these are some behavioral strategies that can be used. So behavioral activation or activity scheduling, basically what this means is actually scheduling either on a day-to-day -day or weekly basis different self-care activities that would bring the patient pleasure and a sense of accomplishment and focusing on what they can do. Um, we kind of jumping down to smart goal setting, this is something that is really important with behavioral activation um, because we want to make sure that we are setting goals that are specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-based. So we wanna make sure that these are not too lofty of goals that would make the patient feel discouraged or wanna give up. We wanna, again, meet them where they're at and set goals that they will be able to um, complete and be successful at completing. Because once they do that, then they'll get that sense of mastery and accomplishment and they'll maybe feel more willing and confident to add on to those goals. Alternative behaviors to manage unpleasant emotions is really important as well, especially if someone has the tendency to maybe engage in unhealthy coping strategies such as um, emotional eating, using alcohol or drugs. Um, so helping the patient think about what are some other ways that they can uh, maybe have an outlet for stress, um, experience pleasure throughout the week, and really try to help them figure out where they can incorporate that in their schedules. 
Self-monitoring is also really important. Um, so you can do this in any different realm. A really common way of self-monitoring is like using a food log, for example. Um, so this is ideally completed in real time. There's a lot of apps available out there for self-monitoring and it improves adherence um, and facilitates mindfulness over our behaviors. So if our goal is to eat healthier, doing a, a daily food log will help us be able to see what we're eating throughout the day. Um, if we wanna make sure that we're drinking more water or taking our medications, having that ability to record and kind of check off when we do the things that we need to do will really help us um, adhere to our goals. Stimulus control, so what this means is basically setting up your environment in a way to encourage desired behavior. So for example, if we're talking about modifying eating behaviors and say if someone has a tendency to maybe eat foods high in sugar or fat when they're feeling certain unpleasant emotions, trying to keep that out of the house uh, can really be helpful. You know, if we don't have easy access to something, then we're less likely to kind of go out of our way to get that stimulus. So trying to do that, or if we want someone to try to adhere to their medication regimen, maybe putting their medications in a place where they will stop each morning and kind of pass it, and that will remind them to take it. So setting up your environment to help you. Building up your social support system is really important. Um, so as, as patients feel comfortable, they can disclose their illness to others. Um, it's really important to keep in mind the different forms of social support. So getting emotional support from someone, some tangible support, like so if someone needs um, transportation to medical appointments, that's kind of what that tangible support means. And then informational support. So this might be through um, attending like a support group for a certain chronic disease or making sure that you're getting the information that you need from your provider. And then practicing assertive communication is really helpful as well. Um, an example of this, um, for example, if someone is trying to work on their weight, uh, but with, with their friends, they typically will go out to eat on the weekends. Practicing assertive communication might look like talking to their friends and, again, as they feel comfortable disclosing their goal uh, that they want to work on managing their weight, they're trying to become healthier, and maybe suggesting another way that they can spend quality time together. Maybe going shopping or going to a movie, going on a walk instead of going out to eat. Relaxation training is also helpful. Um, so this can include a number of different strategies, including progressive muscle relaxation, guided imagery, or diaphragmatic breathing. There's a lot of resources on YouTube for these types of things. If you just type it in, um, a lot of times you'll get videos that have someone kind of talking and walking, having the ability to walk you through these exercises. In terms of cognitive strategies, um, so again, going back to CBT, the whole idea is that our thoughts, behaviors, and emotions all impact each other. Thoughts specifically in the CBT model, um, thoughts are expected to change our emotions. So if we have a really negative way of thinking, it makes sense that that would maybe lead to certain emotions, like I'm um, feeling really anxious or worried or feeling really down or depressed. So the whole premise of CBT is that if we impact these thoughts, that should then impact our emotions, which then ultimately impacts our behaviors. So if we're feeling really depressed and anxious, we might not be as willing to spend time with our loved ones or be active. We might lack motivation. Um, it's really hard to change emotions. So that's why CBT really focuses on changing these thoughts. So different ways that this can be done. 
So cognitive restructuring and adaptive thinking. So again, our thoughts influence our mood and behaviors. In terms of worry, worry can sometimes be productive if it leads to some problem solving, thinking ahead, planning, but we know that it also can be unproductive. And this is when it leads to things like anxiety or it's really hard to concentrate on other things that we need to do because we're worrying. So it's important to challenge those worries and that's what um, cognitive restructuring means. Um, it's also important to challenge maybe automatic negative thoughts like I'm a failure or things more on the depression side of things. So different ways of doing this um, could be thinking about what is the evidence to support this negative thought that I'm having, but also what's the evidence to go against that. And usually what we'll find is there's a lot more evidence that doesn't support that negative thought than evidence that does support it. Um, there's a, a number of different kind of unhelpful thinking styles, one of them which is catastrophizing, another one is all or nothing thinking. So thinking about our thoughts and, and determining if they fall into one of the core um, kind of unhelpful thinking styles. And then I like this strategy, what would I tell a friend? What would you tell a loved one? If someone came to you with a similar concern or a similar thought, oftentimes we're much more compassionate towards others and really thinking about that with ourselves. Sometimes our, we're our own worst critic and it's really important to try to be uh, flexible with ourselves and compassionate as well. And then acceptance is really important um, in kind of managing chronic disease. So how can a patient willingly face challenges and be proactive with managing their health? Trying not to dwell on the negative emotions, but rather engaging in value consistent actions and really focusing on trying to adapt and adjust to the chronic disease. There's also some recent research demonstrating efficacy of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for treating depression and diabetes specifically. So this is very similar to CBT, um, but it is more focused on mindfulness, which is really being aware of the present moment, um, very intentionally paying attention, um, and really not having judgment. And so with MBCT for short, um, this incorporates a lot of formal meditation, yoga exercises, and informal daily mindfulness practices. So in terms of ways of accessing behavioral health resources in the community, so in terms of finding a therapist, what I would recommend for people is going to several different websites and searching specifically uh, with the terms health psychology or CBT. So psychologytoday.com is a really great resource. Um, on this website, you can put in your zip code, your insurance provider, if you have any specific preferences for a provider like um, male versus female, if you have any specific focuses um, for what you're hoping to work on like grief or depression. So psychologytoday.com is a great way to locate um, a good fit provider for you. Locator.apa.org, and that's the American um, Psychological Association and then abpp.org slash directory. And this is kind of our organization for board certification of psychologists. So this is another great um, way to find um, providers in, in your area. Another great idea is talking with your PCP about medications or establishing care with a psychiatrist. Most, people, most patients are meeting with their PCPs regularly. Um, and so they can be a great resource for you to help you um, locate referrals um, and providers to work with. 
and then apps for guided meditation and online therapy. There's a lot of different options out there, um, some off the top of my head, so Talkspace, Headspace, in terms of different um, telehealth counseling, um, and then some different mindfulness apps, including Calm and Smiling Mind, um, have a lot of evidence uh, to support them. Um, so another great way to um, increase access to different behavioral health services. So in summary, it's really important to consider what we can do to improve quality of life in patients with chronic disease. It's really important to address concerns from a biopsychosocial perspective. So again, thinking about the whole person and thinking about all these factors that can influence their chronic disease and health. And then um, cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness strategies can be really helpful to use with these patients to help with coping and adapting to chronic disease. Thank you so much, Ashley. Um, that was so helpful. And now I'm starting to think, you know, in some cultures, there is this trend for patients who have chronic illness or who have a poor prognosis of family members of hiding that information from the patient because they're worried that if they get depressed, that that will worsen their health outcomes. And it seems like perhaps there might be some truth to that. You know, depression really does worsen health outcomes. So really helpful to hear your take on it. Now, um, you know, I really loved how you put those list of resources at the end for where you can find a counselor because that is for sure uh, a barrier to getting care for patients. Now, um, I think with COVID-19, we've really had an increase in uh, telemedicine and our ability to do telecounseling. Is that, um, is that a good way? Can people really get good rapport on telecounseling? Is that something you would suggest to patients? That is a great question. And there actually is a lot of evidence to suggest that telehealth counseling is very um, is a great alternative treatment to in-person counseling. The effects are pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. So that's a great question about developing rapport. It is it is able to be done. I would say though another important factor to consider is that sometimes it's it's obviously the patient's preference. Mm -hmm. So if someone would like to come in person, then I think that that's something important to assess. Um, but in terms of, you know, if someone lacks access to in-person counseling, that is a great alternative. Mm -hmm. Great, and thanks for listing some of those apps for the mindfulness. Um, are there other additional resources? I've, I've heard mindfulness used a lot these days um, in all sorts of settings like mindfulness-based stress reduction, and you mentioned it for therapy. Um, are there specific types of courses of mindfulness, just like you do have, you have CBT for counseling? Yeah, um, so again, with the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, that's a great um, kind of treatment method if you're wanting to focus more on mindfulness. Again, there are some apps out there that you can do kind of more like self-help type of things. Um, I think I mentioned the Calm app, um, Smiling Mind, Mood Fit, Headspace. The other thing when I, um, presented on those different um, mindfulness strategies like progressive muscle relaxation, diaphragmatic breathing. Those are things too, as I had mentioned, go on YouTube and mm -hmm. type that in and you will find so many different resources and people who can help walk you through those exercises. Perfect. And Kevin, um, you know, going back to screenings a little bit, is there uh, a specific recommendation for patients with chronic medical illness to be screened at any particular interval or frequency? I think in general, you know, especially in patients who have chronic medical illnesses, it's a good idea to screen them at least yearly um, with their, um, and also, also if they have any change in course. So for example, if their illness, uh, if their cancer recurred or things like that, it's also important to screen.
Mm -hmm. Perfect. And then a question about mixing medications. So, you know, like you said, you could be using some of those antidepressants off-label. Let's say you're using a low-dose TCA for someone's chronic pain, um, but you can't use a higher dose due to side effects. So then uh, their depression isn't fully treated. Is it okay to then add a different antidepressant or is that something you would recommend um, referral to psychiatry to help manage? That's a great question. And combining different serotonergic antidepressants is some, something that's sometimes done, but because of the risks of things like serotonin syndrome, I do recommend you know, referring to a psychiatrist if considering a regimen like that. Perfect. Or if you have a collaborative care option. Yes. Perfect. Yes. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Um, let's finish up today's talk with a final key takeaway from each of our presenters. Kevin? So major depressive disorder is a depression that affects not just the, the brain, not just, it's not just in the head, but it affects the entire body. And so it's an important part of treating other medical conditions like diabetes and heart disease. And so definitely look for it and uh, manage it or refer to people who can help you manage it. Perfect. And Ashley? I would say keep in mind the biopsychosocial model, understanding that there are so many different factors that influence someone's ability to adhere to treatment, that impacts their mental health, that impacts their physical health. So keeping that in mind and really treating the entire person, not just the physical illness. Thanks. Thank you all for joining us today. You can take our post-test on our website at ccme.osu.edu to get CME credit and ABIM MOC points. You can watch all of our other programs on our website or listen to them by podcast under the MedNet 21 CME podcast. Next week, I will have two of our psychiatric colleagues here to discuss attention deficit disorder in adults. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.